Hey everyone, Sloan here with another episode of Free Money. This is a fascinating one where we look at the municipal finance market from first principles with Tammy Arnold of Alpha Ledger. She starts by explaining what municipal bonds are um, and effectively argues that they were sort of the original impact investment vehicle that was available um, you know, in the early days of the capital markets, right? Um, we then start to think about the links between municipal finance and ESG, and then what we could unlock if we as a society were to effectively reimagine municipal finance from first principles. And that's where Tammy spends a lot of her time with her company, Alpha Ledger, where she and a bunch of colleagues of hers from some time spent at PIMCO and et cetera, um, are trying to build a new issuance process on the blockchain uh, for a municipal income, uh, fixed income, which is so exciting. Then as always, we take questions from listeners. And, you know, just a quick reminder that you can ask a question in a future episode of Free Money by emailing us freemoneypod at gmail.com or visit the website freemoneypodcast.com. Um, and, you know, while you're doing things and typing things into your computer, why not give us a five-star review on your podcast store of choice or just like you know, write an email to your grandmother and tell her how much you enjoy the podcast. Why not? Um, before I get started and, you know, turn turn things over to Sharkbait for our usual disclaimer, I have a special treat for you today. Uh, we have an extra disclaimer from Tammy, um, and I am going to read it in my very best pirate voice. Yar! Mrs. Arnold's comment should not be considered an investment recommendation regarding any security. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and is not to be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy a security in any state. Miss Arnold is expressing her own opinion, and her statement should not be construed as reflecting the views of Iris Trading LLC. Yar! See if you can top that, Sharkbait. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners! I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set ye straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel works for Invest Vegan LLC, a New York registered investment advisor. Ashby Monk works for Stanford University, Adapar, Future Proof, Long Game, and various startups. All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own, and do nay reflect the opinions of their crew or any company. Clients who invest vegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where invest vegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted, and a client agreement has been executed. Arr. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. That I've got a commitment off the top here. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I realized uh, this week, actually, that I have done 40 trips to Australia over the last 12 years. And I wow. am fairly revolted by my personal carbon liability 
Mm. And so I thought I would come on the podcast here today and just say it. Go live, like make some news here that I commit. I will get my personal life to net zero by 2050. I, I, <laughs> I think I could do it. Ashby, I say this all the time, but I don't think I say it enough. You're so brave. I Every time you say it, I appreciate it. So just never stop, never stopping saying I'm brave. Yeah, I, I think I can do it. I'm going to cut out the, the coal toothpaste. Uh, I recently stopped using styrofoam for my coffee. You know. Uh, but I think I, could, I think I can pull it off. I might have to just use offsets. But, you know. I mean, like, that's, you know, like, hey, that's. The, the offsets are pretty valid, I think. Like, and you know, maybe maybe you should be doing offsets anyway, right? Shouldn't we not emissions? Shouldn't we encourage all of the free money podcast listeners to make that same commitment, net zero by twenty fifty? And then I think we could be the first podcast <laughs> with, and it's not just scope one. That's me and you. Scope two podcast net zero. That's our <laughs> listeners all committing. Look, it's 2050, you guys. Just yeah. do it already. You know what Just I mean? Do it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We don't have to do shit for 20 years. We're just going to be like sleeping on our oil bed, which is like a water bed, but firmer. It's more viscous. Yeah. Like, I, I think, <laughs> the, you know, the, the added viscosity gives you added support. And that that is, you know, I guess in a way more sustainable, um, even though it's, you know, you're sleeping on crude oil. Yeah. So, you know what I'm talking about? Do you think that our trolling of the net zero is going to demotivate any net zero stuff? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I, I don't think so, because I good. think that, like, the people that we're speaking to on this are already so in the tank on the, like, okay. like that's dumb. Uh, you know, like, I think even when, like, people are, like, in a place where they have a very serious institutional net zero commitment and, like, they're working to bring that about, they're like, well, I know that we should be doing this sooner, but yeah, you know, I'm constrained. Um, I, I just wish if somebody would just go ahead and venture capital fund us already, we could, you know, recruit a team of people and develop comprehensive standards on net zero podcasting. Um, you know, that's when we really get to start making impact, uh, you know, on this, right? I and, am revenue positive. I think we, are, we, we are. have made money in the atelier. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, how's our Opus Day um, chain co coming along? Weren't we going to do that? For self the self-flagellating? <laughs> yeah, the self-flagellation uh, chain. Right <laughs> now in the free body atelier. That's a little bit of an inside joke. So this yeah, is the first will, podcast. I apologize. I mean, if, you know, if, if all good students of ESG and sustainable investing know <laughs> that one of the most important things to recognize is that you are full of sin. Yeah, it's just the same way that Catholic theologians thought that we were full of sin, you know? Um, and so yeah, mm. we, can, we can incorporate some, you know, of the ancient traditions of, you know, hitting yourself over the back with a bunch of chains. I think the problem in adding it to the free money atelier uh, has been, you know, identifying a sustainable source of torture device. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And let's not forget the fact that the atelier doesn't exist right now. That's I think true. It, That's we true. brought it down for a little that, while. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think Etsy decided that we were officially too good 
uh, yeah. for them. Uh, and like, it was just scary to a lot of the other vendors on there. Um, yeah. and, and also like, I, I think that you, you know, you and I are contractually obligated to only make so many websites, you know, that's uh, true. We did have a technical glitch here, unfortunately, because I'm realizing Sloan can't see me. She's <laughs> having to do this from her phone because her computer died as we were literally starting the pod. But I'm holding up my portable alpha mug. What? Oh, yeah, God. I still have it. It says free money in little writing at the bottom there, Sloan. Anyway, should I do the news? I think you should do the news. Let's yeah, do the I mean... news because I got some. Mm -hmm. um, let's go straight to the Netherlands where the... APG, which stands for something, I'm not sure what, but it's it's long. Of Dutch, thought of people <laughs> out of the Netherlands. Holy shit! The Dutch Pension Awesome People Group is launching. Okay, hold on. That one got me. That one got me. The Dutch Pension Awesome People Group is launching a multiple digitalization project what does that mean they're launching uh, a whole plan on how they test digitalization pilots identify winners and then scale them up or shut them down to me i think this is so fascinating because this feels like a true research and development capability for digital innovation within a pension plan Granted, it's awesome people group, so they're yeah. awesome. Yeah. But it is very rare to see a, a function like this where they're going to pick projects, they're going to experiment without the expectation that it takes off, mm -hmm. and the winners will be scaled and the losers will be shut down. Have you seen anything like this? No, I mean, like, I think that so often, like, the, you know, these plans have like, ah, oh, yeah, so year one, we're going to start it, and then by year five, we'll revolutionize the industry. Yeah, um, you know, and like, I, I think, you know, leave it to APG to give its teams permission to fail. Oh, uh, you know what I mean? In, in like this incredibly important way and also to, to model it for the rest of the industry. Um, I am a big fan of Awesome People Group. And yeah. uh, I've written a few papers with the chief operating officer of Awesome People Group. He's been on the podcast. Yeah. Um, and I'm yeah. hoping that we start saying Awesome People Group with such a straight face that people think, is that actually the name? Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, it, it's like, and uh, I, I feel like you know that that's probably what whatever the acronym, you know. No, I think it is actually. You know, I, I just googled it. Uh, oh, that is it. No, that is no it. need. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Next stop. <laughs> Next news coming to you from the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States of America. Ooh. Friends, of opening the their twenty twenty two. Priorities, a, a topic that is very near and dear to us, mm -hmm. they plan to go and study how investors use ESG data. This is mm -hmm. one of three of their key projects. Um, and apparently they're telling us that buying ESG data and simply showing the receipts to your limited partners does not count as actually using ESG data. You need to do more than show the receipts. <laughs> your limited partners you cannot be like hello look 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 i bought this data packet um and i i feel like you know if you have a bloomberg terminal you're like automatically buying a lot of esg data now are you i mean like i they must I, like i can't afford a bloomberg terminal i can't either i mean like i i think that you know it would be it would cost like six times what my like firm makes 
<laughs> yeah. More. But we like, can't even write it off the free money revenue because it's more than the revenue. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, until we launch our, our partnership with Bloomberg, you know, obviously. Yeah, but, uh, please call us. But yeah, like that, I mean, wow. I, for one, am really excited to, you know, like see how that develops. And, you know, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll get fewer and fewer people that are like, you know, able to just pretend that they do ESG in the not too distant future. Let's hope. You know, and the frustrating thing about the current backlash against ESG, they're calling it woke capitalism now. Hell yeah. In conservative circles, which may make you barf a little bit in your mouth um, when you hear woke capitalism. Or maybe we just own it. And we're like, we're fucking woke. Um, I don't know what we're going to do. But the point of having the SEC come in and like build standards around it is to make it just that much more legitimate. Yeah. So I'm really... I think this needs to move out of the Wild West and into kind of the proper risk management toolkit, which is why I call it out. Next piece of news before we get to our guest. By the way, I did alert the guest that we were delayed by technology. So oh, wow. Turned, I did. I said, if you aren't admitted immediately, um, it's a function of our tech sophistication because you think that this is bad technology, but we pivoted so quickly to alternative technology. Mm. It's actually an illustration of our good technology. I, I mean, yeah, like that there actually <laughs> is, you know, in the ongoing performance art of us trying to have a podcast, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there is a, a, an object lesson in what makes good technology. And yeah, we, you know, we have redundant systems. This is like an airplane. It goes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Podcast flies. <laughs> anyway. My next story. We're having a lot of fun today. This is good. I don't know. I didn't start drinking yet. Don't worry. It's all <laughs> just coffee. Um, fee study. Our good friends at Institutional Investor. And I think it might have been even Alicia's story um, about a new fee study done by a VestNet or one of these. Oh, VestNet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's them. They did a fee study, and some of the findings of the fee study are very interesting, intuitive, but it's fun to see it written down because it makes you realize that the asset management industry is not all that dissimilar from a used car lot. <laughs> they are going to charge you what you are willing to pay. That's basically what the fee study showed. And, like, if you walk onto that used car lot, and you don't come off as being that sophisticated because your budget is a little bit smaller. Your assets under management are a little bit smaller. They're going to spot you. They're going to charge you 65 basis points for a, what was this one? Large cap growth equities fee structure. If you're a badass, you walk on loan, no one like you own the place. They're going to charge you 45 basis points. Mm -hmm. That's a big swing. Yes. Yeah, in percentage. Yeah, that's huge uh and and just so cynical i know like as much and i'm sure we're going to talk about the certain mr musk later oh no Elon, because he's buying the twitter sphere um but the one thing i'll give him credit for on his car lot is there's no negotiate it's a price yeah and that does feel delightful we're all getting screwed the same way yep yeah, I mean, like I, I like when I was setting up my own fee structure, I was like, "Wow, I could do almost infinite complexity on this." Um, and then I was like, "But what if one <laughs> percent?" Yeah. What if, what if just one percent? 
how it's just like it's one number <laughs> and you either like it or you don't and there's no side letters or mfn clauses or yeah yeah i was like maybe i'll like lower the fee for clients as they get they're with the firm for long uh, you know Do I, did i sign an mfn clause i forgot to sign an mfn with you sloan i don't most i don't even know I don't, I don't even know what those Mereften, the most favored nation. It's the most nation. favored nation. And real quick, before we go to Tammy, the MFN is the greatest trick the asset management managers ever played on you. It's like the devil telling you the devil didn't exist. MFN, managers want to sign them because then what they say to you is when you come for your fee discount, they say, if I gave that to you, I'd have to give it to everybody because the MFN. And so it locks the fees up too high. Uh, and, uh, so don't sign them yep. or do I, or do, I don't know enough. Don't do or don't, but just know about what I said. Use the information I'm communicating to make your decisions. <laughs> do we have a guest? <laughs> we have a guest. No, okay. she's here. Um, she's real. Tammy. Um, uh, let's, let's go ahead and join Tammy Arnold of Alpha Ledger, uh, is joining the chat. Tammy, good to see you. Tammy Arnold co-founder of Alpha Ledger. We're bringing Tammy into the podcast to talk to us about the blockchain applied to the most exciting space in the world, municipal loans. Welcome, Tammy. Hi, thanks. I Yeah, we're just raring to go on this. I mean, like, I, I think like many people, when I first, as a young woman, learned about the existence of the municipal bond market, I was like, that is just so sexy. How is it even allowed to exist? <laughs> um, you know, I, I wonder if you could kind of like, start by like taking us into what municipal finance is and like at just the basic level like what they do when they go to get money from the what is and what is a muni it might actually be like a useful way to get you know because the the listeners here are very smart but we're not so we need to uh, be educated yeah 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 so i can uh, i'm happy to start off by telling you what a muni is so (laughs) You know, in the U.S., we had this situation where state and local governments and municipalities own and operate uh, really the lion's share of our infrastructure, right? All of the things that really contribute to our quality of life in this country. It's uh, things like education system, healthcare, transit, energy, affordable housing, our water systems, all of those things here in the U.S., are owned and operated uh, for the most part at uh, the state and local level, right? Um, The municipal bond market is actually the market that is used to finance that activity. So it's, uh, you know, Sloan, I agree with you. I mean, (laughs) the first time, it's one of those things I say, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? The muni bond market is cool. And uh, you're just trying to help people, help people see it. Is it a mess What's that? Is it a mess, though? Uh, well, is it a mess? Well, it, it, it's, I would say it's maybe no longer most fit for purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know I'd say mess, but it was built for a different day and time, right? Uh, was, I'd give you a little bit of history on what it was built. I mean, I think yeah. that might, might be helpful, right? I so, would love to hear it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Alpha Ledger, right, where I'm from, we are a first principles-oriented firm. So oftentimes we may start a sentence by saying something like 100 years ago, 
Right? Yeah. But when I talk about the Muni market and when it was built, it started 200 years ago, actually. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of going back. I, I love that. Is that the stock market? How old is this? I don't even know. How, I don't think it's that old. Yeah, I think it probably is before the stock market. Yeah, actually. So, so the, the Muni story that I like to think about when I contemplate why we're here today and how we got here is to go back to New York in 1817, right? New country. So back then, um, our country was building its infrastructure. Wow. And the, the governor of New York, this guy, DeWitt Clinton, he used to be the mayor, then he became the governor. He had this really grand idea to build this canal that connected the Hudson River to the Great Lakes, right? He wanted to transform Manhattan into this, uh, what he called an emporium of commerce, Ooh. right? Yeah. So at that time, right, municipal finance was really local, right? So if a municipality or I don't even know if they called it that, right? But if a, a local government needed to raise capital, they'd go to They'd go to local uh, investors. They'd rely on various revenues. But this was like a grand project. It was multi-jurisdictional, right? It was multi-year. It was big. And it surpassed the scope of his personal network of investors, of local investors. And it really passed what was available from other mechanisms like local taxes. So back then in 1817, right, Governor Clinton um, went to banks, right? These institutions that were trusted. And he said, Hey, um, rather than just using my networks, how about if we use your networks? And he worked with banks for the first time to bring municipal debt for the Erie Canal to the market through the bank intermediary intermediated model. And that's how it all got started right? Mm. The pipes for the muni market got laid, at least the basic ones, <laughs> back in the early 1800s, right? The and question said it is, how different is it today <laughs> than what you just described? Yeah. Well, you know, it's not that different, okay? So, I think we're bleeding between this. Yeah. I, I didn't think <laughs> Yeah. But well, great to hear the story of that, too. Well, today, you know, in, in, in its basic form, it's not that different, right? So the model of bank intermediated municipal finance is what we have today. And it's, I'll simplify it, but it's really the process where a municipal issuer engages with a broker dealer, often a bank, to underwrite a municipal bond offering, a security, right? And then sell it to that broker dealer's clients, right? It's kind of the same model back with Governor Clinton in New York. But what has changed a lot are the conditions that we live in, okay? So if you go back to the early 1800s, when this model was developed, one of the key conditions was that communication was difficult. Mm. And what that meant is that the value of private networks was high, particularly if you had a complex sale that you needed to execute, which is certainly the case with municipal debt. I mean, can you imagine at the time the complexity of selling bonds on the Erie Canal, right? That's a complex sale and communication was hard and personal networks were important, right? But today we face vastly different conditions, but the model kind of remains the same. So today 
communication, even of highly complex information to a large audience, is very straightforward. And so the value of private networks for distribution has declined. So a lot's changed, but the model's a little bit more the same. That's why we're interested in making it more fit for purpose for what's going on today. And maybe just give us a quick second. We talk a lot about ESG and, and as much as we're saying how amazing the municipal market is, I think we're insiders. Most of the people will be like, isn't that a boring market that I don't want to get a job working on? Truth is it's outstanding. And, and it's like one of those areas where like personal networks still really do matter. Um, but what, a, what kind of, I mean, I study this space because we see inefficiencies and then we look at project finance as an alternative and P3s as a, a public private partnerships as a way of financing infrastructure. And that like the mutual tax advantages states give each other and the beauty market is actually a distortion. Anyway, all of that coming together, I, I'm just curious, like what or the consequences of the inefficiencies in this market, which you point out is functioning not all that differently than it was 200 years ago. Like, what is the problem statement around that market today and what are the consequences? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there are really two impacts to the inefficiencies in the muni market that's social impacts. Um, the first is related to the cost to finance municipal activity. And the other is related to the access to municipal investments at origination. So I'll talk about each of those. In terms of cost, I think it's helpful to, to understand some of the characteristics of the market itself, because that contributes to the inefficiencies of the current system. Okay. Um, so here's, a, here's an overview of what the muni market looks like. There are over 70,000 municipal issuers in the United States. There's somewhere around 900,000 outstanding muni bonds, okay? And every year, about 14,000 new muni bonds come to market, and states and local governments issue between four and 500 um, billion per year of new municipal issuance. So a lot of new bonds, 14,000 new bonds. If you think about that compared to the equity market, there's not even that many stocks in the, in the equity market. <laughs> so, so just the little uni market, which is 8% of the bond market, uh, produces about 14,000 new bonds a year, okay? Oh, that's incredible. I know, it's mind-blowing, right? So <laughs> it, gets even, it, it gets even more interesting from there. 85% of those bonds come to market with a par value of 50 million or less, hmm. which means they're small securities. Yeah, you know, we all hear about the billion dollar bond offerings, but 85% of the new bonds that come to market are 50 million and below. So the market was designed to facilitate large transaction size efficiency. Go back to to DeWitt Clinton in New York, right? The model was designed to facilitate large transaction efficiency. And it's still designed that way today. And so for those, you know, 12, 13,000 bonds that are coming to market that may not meet the threshold, the cost to come to market can be, can be quite high. Um, 
the other cost that I would note, right, is um, is the access to muni investment at origination. Okay. So technically, um, a state or a local government can sell a bond directly to an individual, but that doesn't really happen much in practice. It's actually a unique regulatory window that they have, but it doesn't get used because they can't really execute at scale. So for investors to access muni bonds um, it's at, at origination, whether it's individuals or institutions, it has to pass through intermediaries' hands, right? And in some cases, multiple times. And each time there's a bite taken out of it, mm. right? And that kind of distribution model is just out of the mm. So we can't just go and buy our California muni, muni bonds directly. We have to go through a bunch of intermediaries. I actually don't even know how it works for me to buy my muni bond. I don't even know if I own a muni bond, right. but tell me. Yeah, that's... If you don't know if you own a muni bond, I'm pretty sure you don't, right? Oh, that's fair. Okay. It totally would be like asked you to like accidentally, you know, through some weird, you know, twist of fate, wind up owning a, like a bunch of some like local stadium project or something like that. My 401k at Stanford may have some pennies <laughs> in there, but I doubt it. Yeah. Well, it's, and so in particular, when a muni bond is brought to market, right, at the point of origination, it's really hard because the way it comes to market is through an intermediary. So by definition, it's sold to an intermediary. It's underwritten. And then the bond moves from there to that intermediary's clients or on to another intermediary. So you may have exposure to muni bonds through a mutual fund, perhaps. That's kind of a common way to get it. But even that mutual fund is not at the front of the line when the issuer brings a bond to market. They're at best second in line after the intermediation process brings the bond into the marketplace. So it's, you know, it's not direct. It's not a direct marketplace yeah. today. Doesn't even sound like a market. Like when I think about the New York Stock Exchange, which I was wrong, by the way, I think it started in the late. With the, the, the but what it was, anyway. 1792. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. But well, this works. It sounds to me like it's like a private placement rather than like an IPO. You know, it's like it doesn't feel like this is a regulated market in the way that like U.S. public equity markets are. Is that right or wrong? Well, it is a regulated market and it is a securities market, just like like the U.S. stock market is. But uh, bonds trade over the counter and stocks trade on an exchange. Bonds don't trade on an exchange. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some logic to that structure. So if we go back to um, kind of some fundamentals about the stock market and the bond market, right? One of my, one of my favorite questions about the stock oh, market man. is how many stocks are in the Wilshire 5,000? I don't know if either. 5,000? You know, I don't, I don't have the latest yep. number it's somewhere around 3,500. Okay. Yeah. And so there's not a lot of stocks out in the U S right. So stocks are perpetual instruments. They come to market through an IPO and there's not a huge volume of IPOs in any given year, certainly not anywhere near the 14,000 new muni bonds that are created. So the stock market is all about secondary market trading. 
It's about stocks moving from one hand to another hand in the investor universe. So the company gets a one-time injection of capital, and then the stock moves in the secondary market. That's where all the action is. So the bond market clearly has secondary market trading too. But given the number of new bonds that are created each year, and, and also the different return profile, the primary market and the bond market is critical. So the market structures between the two are very different. And as we think about how to evolve the muni market to be fit for purpose, these kind of hmm. structural That's dynamics play a really important role. I think probably mind-blowing for a lot of people who, like, you know, whenever one explains the way that the fixed income market works to somebody who is not used to thinking about such things, um, there's like a, a period wherein they, they, they sort of realize the, uh, the breadth of the interpersonal relationships that are like, you know, essential for getting things done. How does all this play into what you're building at Alpha Ledger? Well, like, what are you building at Alpha Ledger? Yeah. Well, what we're building at Alpha Ledger is, um, what we'd say is really a modern version of this. We're building an open, direct, transparent platform for the origination and ultimately the secondary market trading of municipal debt. Uh, we're doing it with a lot of things that are the same. We've got a couple of different regulated entities that are part of our organization, so that's a really important, important piece. But the way we think about connecting um, investors to issuers is very different. So, you know, I, I have to say, I love uh, uh, Sloan, that chart you have in that uh, year-end piece that you did, right? Um, that yeah. uh, that chart on the unit like, uh, cost of financial and, intermediation. And also get... Uh, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, remember that? Uh, who pr produced it on the podcast one of these times. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, the, the, net of, the, the upshot being basically that the unit cost of financial intermediation has not changed in like 200 years. Exactly. And that, one of the things I love about that chart is it goes back like 100 years, right? So, so uh, anyway, when, I, when we think about our work at Alpha Ledger, okay, and um, we start with the idea that the integration of blockchain technology is, a, you know, it's a, it's a one-shot one opportunity. We're integrating this technology into the financial system. We can either take the approach of integrating it based on the way the system is currently built, right? Go back to Governor Clinton, right? The way the system is currently built and leave the processes the same. And in my mind, what that does, Sloan, is it cements that intermediation cost in, okay? been there for a hundred years, but if we place this technology onto the way we do things today, that number is not going to change. Okay. Mm. Free the money. We don't so want that. We don't want that. Right. We're so the free money. We're trying to break step the money from this. We want to free, free the that. money. We want exactly. that money to go to the people. Exactly. So, well, this is the work we're doing at Alpha Ledger. I mean, we are building a platform and it's operational today, right? But we're thinking about the way the system works from a first principles 
design perspective. And we're doing that in order to unleash a number of positive outcomes related to greater transparency, lower cost, and improved access by investors. So, for example, uh, we, uh, we have a broker-dealer as part of our broader company. And our broker-dealer performs like an important regulatory function to bring an asset to market, or it will. And we perform that function slightly differently. Mm. We perform it as an agent, not as in a primary underwriter, which means the asset never really passes through our hands in terms of ownership, right? It goes directly from the issuer to the yeah, investor. So that of it going you know, in a transparent way. Issued, so that's a key part uh, of what know, we're trying it, to build. Let's say, you know, the bond prices, like yeah. everyone talks about like a hundred, uh, you know, as part of like, so, you know, let's say it gets issued at some discount, you know, the, to the, to an underwriter who buys it. And then there's a markup and that, you know, and then it moves on and there's another markup and then it moves on. There's another markup instead of having all of those chains of intermediation by having it go directly by being that agent, um, you yeah. can, you know, ostensibly deliver the bond, um, you know, at, you know, just a higher price, uh, or, or, you know, a fairer price to the end investor. Is that, is that, would you say that's kind of the overall objective here? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we we are very focused on really reducing frictions of bringing municipal debt to market wherever we can, whether that's in the municipal loan space where we're currently active or the municipal bond market, um, which, we're, which we're gearing up for. Um, that is exactly right. And and the cool thing about um, about the integration of blockchain technology and the digitization of this process and the assets themselves is it really helps us address small transaction size efficiency. So that's an important factor, whether we think about the high number of relatively small par value muni bonds that are issued, right? 85% of the new bonds created every year, 50 million or below. So digitization helps us address that small transaction size dynamic but ultimately will also help us address it on the investor side as well. That's future work hmm. to come. I know there's some um, uh, digitization you know, treasurers really helps that are address small transactions. Aha, wow. That means if we can, you know, if we can do a smaller transaction more efficiently, that means that we could fund smaller projects more efficiently, which means that we could do more random and innovative things. Um, and that's like absolutely fascinating. I, I'm, I'm struck by this weird coincidence where um, you know, we have a subsequent episode coming up with, uh, you know, uh, Mary Childs, who wrote a book about your former employer, PIMCO, uh, which, you know, is one of, you know, uh, to, you know, to some extent is the bond market um, today and one of the more kind of impactful, you know, organizations in that in that area. I wonder, like, you know, how you would put, you know, this in the context of some of the other innovations in bond trading that y'all have dealt with over there, like, you know, for instance, the, e the fixed income ETF. Yeah, well, so I think it's all, you know, that some of these innovations are really related. Um, one of the, one of the innovations that uh, I love to talk about that occurred 
back while I was PIM, at, at PIMCO, and it actually brought my partner, Manish Duda, and I together. Uh, we, were, we were both at PIMCO at the time, uh, was the development of the ETF complex at PIMCO. Uh, so if you think about ETFs, they are a small transaction size economics vehicle. And for PIMCO in particular, back in the, um, you know, uh, 2010, 11, 12 timeframe, PIMCO was really at the front of the curve uh, for bringing actively managed portfolios into the ETF vehicle. And this was groundbreaking work in terms of investor access because, um, on, you know, having a fully disclosed active portfolio in ETF was just not done, right? Managers were concerned that parties would pick off their ideas and just implement them elsewhere. But PINCO actually went through a really cool path of investor access. Hmm. Um, so, you know, when I think of investor access, it's not as simple as can an investor access something, but it's at what price, right? So institutions can access investments at a usually a pretty good price. And then retail investors often pay a higher price that's related typically to distribution. So access is about how do you get that, close that price gap between institutions and retail investors. So, so yeah, PIMCO had a really interesting access story. Um, if you Look at that organization's history of access related to total return, uh, the total return bond strategy, which is a strategy that PIMCO was known for. When the firm started and had an institutional focus to get the best fee on a total return investment, you needed $75 million. That was back in the 70s, right? You had a separate account. Then in the 80s, PIMCO introduced its mutual fund complex, institutional shares. And then you needed $5 million to get the institutional price. Then in kind of the 90s and the early 2000s, a whole host of distrib distribution um, arrangements were made with aggregators. And the, the, the minimum investment for the best price went from a million to 250,000 to 25,000. But when PIMCO launched Bond, its ETF for the total return strategy, the access point at effectively the institutional price went to $100. That's my So PIMCO's got a long history sure. of thinking about access in the bond market, and that's in our DNA at Alpha Ledger. We care a lot about that access. <laughs> yeah. The Free Money Podcast has a long history of thinking about access, too. We think a lot about the reduction of fees and the alignment of interests. And I, and I think I kind of want to talk a little bit about like what role the tokenization of all of these bonds plays. Because we've had, you know, people on the podcast that were like part of the Reddit kind of trading world. We, we've really wanted to dig in to blockchain and tokenization and how it is um, potentially playing a disruptor role here. Um, in your mind, like how does the tokenization component play into your company? And then what is that impact on the market that you're seeking to have through this DeFi, I guess we would call it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a mouthful. So sorry. That's okay. We 
we'll, we'll pick our way through it. So, uh, so let, let me start off with um, where we operate uh, in terms of blockchain infrastructure. Uh, when, when, uh, when I think about blockchain integration into the financial system, um, I always put things in two categories, right? The first is what I would call currency or unregulated tokens. That's where we've seen a lot of the activity today. Not surprisingly, things like Bitcoin are, are such great examples of innovation because they've, incur they've occurred in an un unencumbered environment, right? Um, and that category, whether it's currency or unregulated tokens, I always think of it as bearer-like, right? A bearer asset. You have it in your possession, you own it. If you lose it, it's gone. There's no recourse. That's one category. The other category is uh, assets that are registered and regulated, and that's stocks and bonds. And there, there is a tremendous amount of effort around ensuring your ownership to those assets is there, right? Mm. You can't lose it. So we operate in that space, okay? The regulated asset space. Um, and, and the token, tokenizing debt has multiple implications. At origination, one of the implications is that we create a golden record of the data that describes that asset. Right now, the ledger system that we use in just about every place is the electronic ledger that is duplicated by different market participants, right? So there's this tremendous process of reconciliation that's always ongoing in the bond market because different players keep different records. In electric there's no central ledgers. Is there like a central authority that it's all clearing on, or this is a process? Well, there's clearing, but there's ongoing records management that okay. occurs at virtually every organization that's involved in the bond market. And, and different participants don't always have access to that information. So what tokenization does at origination is it creates, as I said, a golden record that you can always refer to and it's accurate, okay? So that's point number one. The second is it creates a base for transparency. Right now, records are analog in the bond market. Um, so which means that offering documents are reflected as PDFs. And so data transparency, well, it's there. We have data transparency. By creating records at origination that are digital, we can vastly improve ongoing transparency in the bond market. Um, and then the last thing I'll note around tokenization, and this is pretty exciting, although it may, it may sound kind of sleepy, is that bonds, bonds have a complex life, right? They pay coupons on a, you know, a couple times a year. They uh, have call features, they mature, they have to pay out principal. All of those are events that, um, as we envision a digital future, can all occur on chain. So, we we have the ability to really simplify the way the kind of the piping and plumbing of the bond market works. When you say we're envisioning a digital future, are you saying we are not in a digital present for the bond market? Like the bond market isn't digital today? Well, the bond market is not on a distributed ledger. That's for sure. <laughs> so, Got it. So I'll go back to this. We have duplicate records everywhere. 
And we start wow. with analog records. We start with PDF documents. PDF. That is how PDF. Yeah. Document offering documents or PDFs, right? They get stored as PDFs, right? And then data gets extracted from PDFs and disseminated in multiple ways, right? So, so a true digital origination for an asset is, you know, when it occurs, Those, uh, it is sorry, yeah, I was just capturing, creating that information, realizing the digitally at inception, that, you know, uh, and that has downstream effects. Sloan, was that just a mm, or was that a? <laughs> I, I think like the beauty of this conversation is a chance for me to ask all these questions that like I've been dying to ask, but I'm like almost too embarrassed to ask because it's such, yeah. it's such a niche space, but oh, by the way, it's actually bigger than the equity markets. Yeah. And so people assume that you know it, but. Like the notion that this is a PDF driven ecosystem and that we have 13,000 issuances a year and it's not a digital system, like the yeah. inefficiencies that must be baked into this entire ecosystem are astounding. Yeah. And you know, that's why as we, as we do our work, most of the people and organizations we interact with are super excited, right? The people. And the companies in the bond market, they know where these pain points are. Um, the market will evolve. It wants to evolve, right? And our role is just to, um, you know, we want to ensure that um, fundamental process change, right? Going that back to Sloan's chart, right? We want to make sure that part gets baked into how we think about things. Um, so. Well, thank you. Um, I, we started just before you came on talking about how differentiated pricing is very common in this investment world where big people get different prices than small people. And, and it sounds like you, your, your project is going to allow so much more transparency around what people are paying, what's fair, and hopefully just bring liquidity to the market and give me an opportunity to buy some of these directly. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the way the, the origination process has been built is manual. And it yeah. involves sales teams and, you know, a process that's just outdated, right? We, we're used to it, but we can do better than that. And those kind of fixed legacy costs are, are what create the friction on pricing. But in, in, you know, conceptually, if you have a digital asset, well, it doesn't matter if, that, you, like in the context if you sell $100 million or $100, but it's a digital asset that moves at the same Looking same at their budget way. and, so, you know, trying to, trying to rig pennies out of places as we build our that have previously been, but they are able to see, you know, the benefit of reducing these origination costs and ostensibly reducing some administration costs as well, um, you know, and... and you get faster adoption than you're expecting because this this is yeah. like one of those markets that like i think from the moment one hears about it you're like well this is going to be revolutionized somehow yeah. some way soon right um and then you know i guess the first time i heard about it was like yeah. 2005 and here we are still sitting now waiting for the revolution right right
Yeah. Well, I mean, the time has come, right? We know that that blockchain integration is happening. Yeah. In the system. So it's going to happen. It's here. Um, you know, one of the things I, I want to make sure we talk about uh, during our, our time today is um, is really kind of the, the ESG dynamics in the mutant yeah. bond market. I mean, it, I know you guys are into that. I'm into that. Yeah, no, we're, we're pumped about that. I think I blew it by getting all focused on my own stuff. Let, let's talk about ESG. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I think of muni bonds as like the original impact asset. Okay. Yeah. Because since day one, these asset, assets have been supporting all these things that create uh, our, our quality of life here in the U.S. Right. So, again, education, healthcare, transit, water, you know, it goes on. Right. So it's a critical list. Um, and without without these uh, resources and services, things would be a lot different, right? So this is impact investing at its huh. inception, okay? It's always been an impact space. Um, and state and local governments, they are the stewards of these critical assets for our country and for our people. Uh, and the environmental and social quality dynamics of how those assets are deployed is critical. Um, as we, as we, you know, innovate both with respect to environmental issues such as decarbonization, but also on, um, social equality issues, I'd love to, to kind of conceptualize this, this thing we call the innovation relay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, uh, you know, Ashby, you're in Silicon Valley, right? Yep. So. Uh, we think a lot about the innovation that occurs at private companies. Private companies are driving all this incredible new thinking around environmental solutions and social equality solutions in terms of products and services. And it's just phenomenal, right? The innovation that's going on. But where do those products and services go? Who are the buyers of those products and services? Well, in a lot of cases, those products and services, in order to be deployed and have the impact they're intended to, have to be sold to municipalities, state and local governments. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So, you know, when when we started Alpha Ledger three years ago, our, our first meeting with a public utilities district, right? We're there for a commissioner's meeting, and the group in front of us was a team there to sell smart water meters. And so we listened to this group of innovators, this private company, right? Innovated, I'm sure, out of some cool place, right? With a smart water meter infrastructure uh, that would help identify leaks. It would help refine pricing. It would produce important data for understanding water utilization. And it would simplify the implementation of water management because it all happens on your computer. That was pitched right in front of our pitch. And that's what it's all about, right? That incredible innovation around yeah. smart water management pitched to a municipality, funded, again, not a high ticket item, right? Mm. Not a, it's not certainly over $50 million for that municipality to implement its smart water meters. So it's a small muni transaction. And right now it faces friction yeah. in terms of cost and access by investors. But that's the innovation relay, right? 
private companies to municipalities for deployment. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, if you don't get excited about that, I, I don't know. Um, I like it just, you know, super cool. I think we should start another company. It's going to be called the Innovation Relay Fund. I mean, it's an impact. Uh, you it's know, an impact you investment vehicle. Like, okay. Is... We're going to sell it as impact. Innovation Relay Fund. We're going to hype it up. We're going to go and do podcasts about it. Just going to invest in muni funds. I think we could, I agree that you hear about the impacts and we're lucky because we, you know, we've got our friends in the different treasury offices. I think we really do see the impact that comes out of these muni bonds. It's like actual infrastructure gets built. Real it's things like, like, you know. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's so, always like, it's well, what if we, call we, we completely re-engineer the capital like, structure? This is the original impact. Mix of preferential you know, there, 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 like, and this kind of funding, that kind of funding. And then, like, like, there is this baseline reality. Like, you know, literal trillions of dollars need to need funding every year to do things like build community centers. Put the, I mean, like, none of this stuff we need to do to decarbonize or to you know build resilience in our societies is like super super high concept necessarily, right? Like, we need to do basic stuff like know where the water is, um, you know, and how do we do that? I mean, I, I like I'm just thinking about how you know if I could you know, as an investor, see the detail of that individual transaction, you know, yeah, like, w yeah. would the yield on that money go down significantly because you, you get some impact-minded folks crowding in, you know, the, the, our, our homies at the various pensions, our homies at the various family offices, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. That's what I was going to ask. Yes. I'm wondering, Tammy, like, I know we've kept you longer than we said we would, but it's just, we, it got really interesting. And that is, could we, could like a platform like yours begin to deliver us impact data through it? Or, or is that like a, like, would we have to overlay data somehow in your system to be like, this is how much clean water will get built, you know, if you, if you make this investment and, if, and then you start to actually be able to tell stories about the impact. Right. Yeah. Well, this is. This is too, you know, to to be done, right? But in in terms of design, the way we've designed our platform is to have a flexible data repository to collect data that we may not even envision today. So that we can collect the data we have today related to assets. That's no problem. But the question is, what data will we want in the future that will inform our views on an asset? So, so I can give you a couple of examples here. So even just with the, the information we have today, we'd like to make use of proceeds information more transparent, searchable, right, Filter with filters so that um, investors can, can um, create and develop portfolios themselves by looking at asset data. But we can also envision and, and are talking to folks about this right now, an environment where IoT devices start to populate realized resource utilization on municipal assets. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's say a, um, a municipality uh, takes out municipal financing to, um, to retool building infrastructure, right? So 
HVAC systems, for example. Um, those new HVAC systems can give us good information on energy efficiency um, in the building compared to what used to be the case, compared to the baseline that was pitched to raise the assets, and then with the actual data. And uh, this is happening now. In fact, you know, we're, there's one company that we're in early conversations with that is really dying to get this information out there. They have it and they don't know how to monetize it yet. So yeah, we can really envision an environment where data um, stored at a very kind of basic level, but with, with um, uh, really in, in, in improved search capabilities can help us navigate sustainability space in much different way than, than mm -hmm. we do today. You could almost do impact bonds where when certain metrics are achieved, the cost of the capital comes down or, you know, I mean, I think some green bonds have toyed with that. Um, yeah. I mean, those are kind of really interesting concepts, right? Like, like yeah. that are, that are worth exploring. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Tammy. Thank you for coming on. We will read out, we will read out your disclaimer before. I think we have it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This is all us. Yeah. 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 Thanks, awesome. Sloan. Thanks, Amber. All right. It's great to have see you great... guys today. Thanks for uh, inviting me to join your podcast. Yep. <laughs> okay. No, that's our style. Oh. I... oh my god. That was supposed to be the blockchain episode and I I just like took us down the rat hole of muni cuz it's it's like you have this superstar expert on there. Don't you want to like ask the questions you've been too afraid to ask people? Yeah. True. Yeah. But the fun part is to see another use case where the blockchain is going to make the financial system more efficient and effective. You know, the intermediaries aren't going to be gobbling up all the fees. You know, we've got a lot going on here. Um, anyway, that was a fabulous interview. And, uh, you know, next thing you're going to tell me, Sloan, is the Russell 2000 doesn't have 2000 companies in it. <laughs> I know. I just think it's so funny. <laughs> yep. Mm.
Totally. Totally. Indeed. I think that's what it sounds like, right? Building stuff is hard. Oh, that's what time it is. It's the stuff, it's the time where we talk about hard stuff. I took, I have one. It's called taking a vacation when you're trying to build a company. That's hard. I did. We, I, I had a, I had a trip to New York for work. Um, and then my wife and kiddos flew out and it was amazing. We, we did the, the edge, I think it's called down in Hudson yards. You go up to the, and you walk, you walk on glass that he's looking down like hundred stories. It's wild, but it's just so hard to take a vacation. I mean, literally I like blocked my calendar off. I was on, I was only on vacation for three days and you know, every single one of those days I got pulled into things that were mission critical. And it's like, yeah, I guess, well, when there aren't that many of you doing it, it's hard to take a break, you know? So that's my hard thing. Good for you. It is true. You're calling out another aspect, which is getting yourself planned for a vacation is hard. I mean, my Lord, the pain of just being like, how do I, which hotel should I get? You know? Oh, I agree. True. True. Yeah. Also, tip for you, Sloan. Don't go to those all-inclusives if you don't drink alcohol. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's all about endless pina coladas. Like, if you're not going to drink those... Don't go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Me too. <laughs> oh. Gardening tip. Damn it. 
Yep. <laughs> yeah, what are the advertisers going to say this week? Yeah, what's up, you guys? What's up? Mm. Oh. Yes. <laughs> uh, I do have subscriptions to publications, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, I think the Atlantic, New Yorker. I'm trying to think if I have anything else. I might have done the San Jose Mercury News to support the local uh, journalism. Um, but I admit, I admit that I do quite a few Google alerts for topics I care about. So I have Google Scholar alerts for pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, institutional investment. And Google Scholar for the uninitiated is the place where you find academic journal articles. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know about it, your mind just is going to be completely blown by what you've just heard. You're welcome. Uh, and there's always a hack to get every paper. If you get in there and you're like, oh, they're asking me to pay $40. Just send a, you know, hit our, hit the DMS. I'll give you the tricks. Yeah. One of those, there's always a working paper is the point. There's always a working paper for whatever paper they're trying to charge you 50 bucks for. Okay. Yeah, no. I don't get any of that. That doesn't come to me. I want you to read my stuff. I don't get any money once it's published. Uh, so Google alerts for my academic and, and for topics. Like, I think I have a Google alert for every major institutional investment organization on earth. And I have multiple because sometimes they're called different things. And then I get real crafty with my alerts because some funds do a lot of public market trading. So if you, for example, if you put Canada pension plant, you would get 18 million alerts. But if you go Canada pension plan minus sign, nice minus sign NASDAQ minus sign, you know, you kind of like weed out the stuff that is all of the like random reporting. Anyway, that's part of like how I keep myself informed. And then I admit, I just have a very curated Twitter follow list. So I'm not one of these people that just follows everybody. Um, I follow a very small group of people like you, Sloan. I think I only follow 200 people. Um, Okay. I'm always wondering how you manage it. Like, is it, is just basically your vibe is like, I'm going to tune in and see 10 minutes worth of like the Twitter feed. And I don't mind if I miss stuff. Okay.
I love the FT too. I should subscribe. You're right. You're right. Starting to laugh at that, <laughs> but that's how it's <laughs> You guys heard it here first. Waste dive. I love it. I have been published in urban planning journals, EPA, a lot of different urban planning journals. Yeah, no, that's cool. You did such a better job of answering this question than me. So now I need to revise my answer a little bit because you've showed me up. I also read top 1000 funds because I think maybe what this person wanted to know was like, what are good websites? That's what I realized. <laughs> and I was like, Twitter, it's like stupid. <laughs> I did. But I would read, there's five that I like click on almost every day. Top 1000, AI-CIO.com, CIO Magazine, PIOnline.com, P&I, that's Pensions and Investments, InstitutionalInvestor.com, and then occasionally I click on I3Invest and IPE.com. And that, if you just like check in on those every week, you're going to be up to date on all of the news that you're getting out of me. So don't do that because then you'll steal my thunder. But that's, that's where I get a lot of the stuff I get. Yeah, exactly. And that's just like, that's it. There's no context in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so but it isn't, it, it is a, a vibe out there that Europe isn't as friendly to the entrepreneurial project as Delaware, as an example. And so, yep, yep. Basically an offshore financial center living there in America. Um, there are startups, but, but it isn't, I, I admit, as vibrant of an ecosystem. And some people have said this is cultural, like in America, you fail and, and, you know, in Europe, that's painful. Other people think it's, it's a legal, you know, ease of getting going 
projects like Delaware, you're going to go, you're, it's instantaneous practically. Um, we have all these things. You can have an LLC, a C Corp, a B Corp, you, you know, um, and, and it's a lot of it has been automated in the U.S. And so then the final thing that I often hear people talk about is the difficulty around employment. It's very easy to hire and fire and have contractors here in the U.S., not so much in Europe. Um, and, and so that's a lot of um, rational explanations. I think underneath that, there is a lot of entrepreneurship and some pretty kick-ass companies going that are being built in Europe. Um, and a lot of venture dollars that are actually pouring in out there. Um, so I don't know exactly what the question was going for, but, but there's some generic reasons for why, but I encourage the, the listener and questioner to just go explore that ecosystem a bit more because it is increasingly vibrant. I'm not going to take that anywhere. I don't know if you're dangling me. I've addressed those issues, Sloan. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I mean, you know, war is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, you want, I, I would prefer you not burn coal, but at the same time, like, I don't want you to go out of business as like, you know, just today Putin shut down the gas to, to Poland. You know, that's going to create some pain in Poland and companies are going to need to find alternative means of powering, you know, their businesses. So look, I, I'm sympathetic to, the short-term challenges that are inevitable conflicts, crises, you know, pandemics, like shit happens. And, and I just hope that we are building long-term strategies and that we are moving, you know, what is it like the course of history bends towards justice? I, I forget. I'm totally, Yes. Thank you. This is why we're on this together. I just mash shit up um, and you bring it in. Uh, I just want companies to like arc towards progress here. And I understand that we can't, you know, I don't want you to go to business because you made a commitment. Um, and this is, it's an interesting thing. Got me thinking. I did my doctorate on the consequences of pension promises um, driving companies out of business. And you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a lot of companies made commitments, like legal commitments to pay a defined benefit pension plan to people. And, you know, some people were saying, oh, these were management teams that were kicking the can down the road with unions. And maybe they were. But 
what happened was people ended up living much longer than we expected. And those benefits became very big. And, you know, we've talked about GE or Delphi being pension companies, GM, you know, pension company that it makes cards on the side, you know, and, and then, you know, these commitments, they escalate and they can put you out of business. And so I actually wrote a paper called the knot of contracts where these commitments can actually, if they aren't flexible, take you under. And so the, the goal is to have a principled approach. The principled approach for some of these companies was to deliver on retirement security, but you don't necessarily want the retirement security to take you out of business. So there has to be give and take. And that's obviously what we need to do here. The principled approach is to search like mad for clean energy to replace coal. But if it's not available, burn some coal. Totally. Yep. Yes. Or manure. <laughs> I am so excited for this one. I, um, mine, I'm going to tell a story. That's what I'm doing. My garden tip is a story. I have a little trail that I walk up behind my house. Um, and I was on that walk and it looked suddenly like a 30 foot tree had grown since I had last been there. And it was so strange, Sloan. I, I couldn't wrap my head around what was happening. I had walked to this, this spot, you know, hundreds of times. And I'm sitting here staring at a 30-foot tree that I swear to God wasn't there. So I swear. it. And, and I literally took a picture of it. And I run it through my uh, plant identification app, which I have. Do you have, it's called picture this. Oh yeah. But it's the best money I ever spent because I'm constantly taking pictures of things to figure out what they are. Um, and it's called a century plant. It's a succulent. And uh, then I started to put it together. There was a succulent right there and I'm looking around on the ground and there's some leaves that have fallen. But you know, like when something grows super freaking fast, it has kind of a different look to it, right? 
These are called century plants, but they live about 30 years. And for 29 and a, a years and 11 months, they're small. They're three to five feet and they look like succulents. They don't, there's nothing tree about them at all. There's nothing tall. These are small things that are, yes, they spread out wide. Suddenly near the end of its life, this plant shoots a 30 foot and like wide. It's like, I don't know, foot around. It's, 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 it's like, how the heck does it have the energy for this? Um, it looks like a tree and it goes up 30 feet and it blossoms these yellow flowers. And then it, it sends these like seeds out there, um, in order to produce more. And then the whole thing dies. So when I go back, it may already be dead because it's been a few weeks since I saw it. Um, and it's gone. That's its life cycle. And it was the most nuts thing. I encourage everybody to just gazoogle that thing, century plant succulent, just to like wrap your head around it. I can even if you care to see it. I'll send you the picture I took. But uh, yes, yeah, so that's my story. Watch out for those things is my tip. Yeah, look at this stuff that I'm telling you. Yeah. 30 foot tree. I mean, I swear to God, it's a tree. It, uh, like, <laughs> all right, what's your tip? True. Yep, okay. How'd that go? <laughs> Huh? Yeah. Sure. Amazing. I will tell you, I don't, I do that. My mom taught me that one. Uh, she ties, um, like ribbon that you would tie around a birthday present or whatever, any kind of like that little flashy ribbon, um, around 
you know, like the blueberry plant or the tomato plant and just the floatiness of the, of the ribbon, um, does the same thing. It's like too much movement. It's too bright. It's too strange. The birds don't come and eat your stuff. Um, so that's another idea. Yeah, exactly. I don't think so. I think we're good. Oh, I do love you. I love you. Yeah, we love we love that you. If you made it this far, we love you. Wow. Listen. <laughs> That's coming. Bye. Yeah. Ah. I hope it comes out. Let's find out. <laughs> yeah, good to see you too. Or hear you. Or most of that. Hey, when's Delilah coming out? Okay. Oh, mm. brutal. Okay. I'm looking like money, 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 money,